uh, those who are visiting with us today to observe the baptism that is to come. We each week look at a text of Scripture and I invite you to Acts chapter 10 today. It's a lengthy passage. We do not hurry the teaching of God's Word here together in assembly, but we'll soak in it and spend some time in it, perhaps a bit longer than you're used to, but as we look through this passage, it is a very vital historical account for us and really uh, much of the foundation of what takes place in this baptism. So we want to, as is our norm, to feed on this word at some length here together this morning. Our lives, as we know, if we think about it, are ordered by boundaries. There's national borders, there are state lines, there are city limits, all providing governmental order and security for our lives. Even just as you got here this morning, there were traffic lanes that you had to take and observe. There are sidelines in athletic contests that make it work. There's even the place where you put your toothbrush. That's your toothbrush. That's your place for it. Those boundaries are important to life. In the social realm, a wedding celebrates the formation of a tight boundary around a man and a woman. The church gathers to witness, to celebrate this couple's promise of lifelong fidelity to one another. To pursue a kind of intimacy with one another that no one else is permitted to share with them. It's a tight border. But living in a fallen world, many social boundaries we realize are complicated recipes, mixing in pragmatic, temporary, frustrating, wise, foolish, sometimes even downright evil elements as boundaries are created. When those boundaries are tested, people take note. And sometimes entire eras change, such as took place in 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and European communism crumbles. Our gathering today bears witness to one of the greatest boundary collapses in history. The boundaries were established by God. They were necessary boundaries. They were temporary boundaries as far as God operates. And for Him, one day is as a thousand and a thousand is one day. He doesn't count time the way that we do, but they were boundaries in place for a very long time. They were necessary for the outworking of His plan to save His people from their sins. But God toppled these boundaries. And our gathering on this Lord's Day bears witness to this history-altering development in redemption's plan. The historical record of this event we find here in Acts chapter 10, it's a passage that we should hold as tightly as refugees hold a passport to freedom. This is really in many respects our identity as a gathering here as a body of believers today. But before we work to grasp the significance of this story, we need to first consider how God employed certain restrictive, temporary boundaries to reveal His salvation plan to His people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll take a little bit of time to establish that context and that background. The narrow boundaries of God's redemptive plan as it unfolded through the ages. The first aspect of it was following Adam's sin in Eden. 
God identified Adam's son, Seth, as the head of a line of believers that God would use to provide salvation from the penalty of sin. There's going to be two types of people watch these lines down Seth's line, those who follow God, a line of believers, a Redeemer will come. As time passed, God chose Abraham as the head of a single family, a narrow ethnic boundary that God would use to redeem His people. And the sign that you were part of Abraham's family was circumcision, to identify you as this chosen family through whom God would save His people from their sins. The third aspect was in the development of time, the unfolding of God's plan, was Abraham's offspring formed into the nation of Israel. With these words, God established the covenant with these people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Notice there the boundary, the distinctiveness. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now the idea of a kingdom of priests mediating the grace of God to the nations is there. It's somewhat subtle, but the idea that Israel will have a part in reaching the nations was part of all of this as it began with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. But you'll notice here that they are a unique possession. They are a treasured people in God's design and purpose for Israel. God then gave His law to Israel, which created, erected even more boundaries than circumcision, which continued. But there were now restrictive food laws and festivals and Sabbath and an array of other religious observances and scruples. And then God designed a tabernacle at the center of which was the most holy place of His presence. And around this place, God positioned a series of exclusionary boundaries. And this is not a picture of the temple area, but just in a concept of social boundaries. There was the most holy place where the presence of God resided in that tabernacle area. The high priest was not permitted in that area except for one time a year and just that high priest. More restrictive boundaries were placed around the Aaronic priests who were permitted in the temple to service it, but not in the most holy place. And then the Levitical priests who served the tabernacle complex, but not in the tent itself. More restrictive boundaries as the eleven tribes of Israel were not permitted into that complex with its border, even a temporary wall around it that would move with them from place to place. And of course, the Gentiles were outside even of Israel that surrounded that tabernacle as the nation moved and eventually as it becomes the temple in Israel. So as Israel entered the promised land, one commentator has said it this way so well, the borders of Israel were the borders of of God's kingdom. And the boundaries of Jacob's family were the boundaries of God's people. Boundary after boundary, outside and within the nation. For over 2,000 years, God erected a series of restrictive boundaries to display His holiness 
to make perfectly clear this point. You must approach God on His terms. Not yours. His. Only by identifying with the nation of Israel, only by identifying with this treasured possession of God, could you be saved. And one of the messy aspects of this plan was that this immensely narrow channel of salvation through Israel severely limited Gentiles' access to salvation. Now, the Old Testament prophets foretold a day when Messiah, and I quote, would inherit the nations and become their light. The prophets declared that the nations would stream to His temple and upon them He would pour out His Spirit. So the prophets pointed to this day. But most Israelites muted this biblical prospect and they emphasized the boundaries. Even the apostles of Christ really struggled with this, didn't they? Jesus had said, in fact Himself, I come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's no question what he meant. Now, he probably meant more than people took at the moment. But I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I am the Messiah of this treasured people, this chosen nation. As far as the apostles were concerned, it might seem perhaps even that the Great Commission they might have taken at first as going into all the nations and reaching Israelites for Christ. When we think of it as Gentiles, as non-Jews, which most of us would be here today, might be pictured the sort of sense of this, like a, a homeless orphan who lives in the street across from a home where there's a large window and a family that loves one another and lives together in that home gathers each night for supper and eats a meal together. And this orphan watches that and has no categories for it. He has no home. He has no parents. He has no one to care for him. And he sits and watches this display night after night. And he says, I wouldn't want that. People have to sit in a chair to eat their food. They, they always know what they're going to eat. And they have to sit together there in that house. I wouldn't want to be part of that, he says in, in bitterness, not knowing what he's missing. Not knowing that he's been left out. In some sense, this is where the Gentiles were. Those weird Israelites doing all these strange things. No sense that God had loved these people uniquely. Giving them His Word and setting His glory in their midst. They didn't know what they were missing. We didn't know what we were missing. We were blind to it. But we were cut out. We come to Acts chapter 10 and we see the history of the toppling of these boundaries. Now the toppling has been going on since Christ died and rose from the dead. But as His people are brought into a knowledge of it, so we are brought into a knowledge of it. As we are introduced here in Acts 10 to Cornelius and a vision that this man has at Caesarea Maritima, the the city of Caesarea. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we work through. But notice there at verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So just by aid of the the map here, Caesarea on the sea was a city about 30 miles north of Joppa. Uh, It was the seat, that is Caesarea, of the Roman government in Judea. You can visit it today and see the remains of this magnificent city. Herod the Great built a, a magnificent harbor here. This is obviously just a rendering of what it might have looked like, something along these lines. And and the sketch is all there for us to see today. But a magnificent harbor. There was a luxurious palace uh, that was jutting into the sea. There was a a renowned temple there right at the end of the harbor that uh, drew you into the pagan worship of the times. There was an aqueduct that was the envy of many, bringing fresh water into the city and There was lavish entertainment venues that are still used today. What movie theater around here is going to stand for 2,000 years, but they're still doing concerts in the uh, amphitheater there at Caesarea. An amazing place that Herod built up, a magnificent city. And here at this seat of power of the Roman Empire in Judea is Cornelius. He is a, a centurion in this city. Centurions, the army carefully selected these individuals as the mainstay of the Roman army. They gave order to 100 soldiers. But it was these individuals giving administrative responsibilities with these soldiers, but also being few in number, such that these individuals were the backbone of the Roman army. They're carefully selected and paid five times more than the soldiers that they commanded. Cornelius was also a man of high character. He is called here a uh, God-fearer, one who, who feared the Lord. Gentile, that's a reference to Gentiles who embraced the monotheism of Israel, attended the synagogue but were not circumcised and thus remained outside the covenant community, sometimes referred to as a proselyte of the gate just about there, but not taking circumcision, which would have uh, ended his work as a a Roman soldier and would have alienated him from the Gentiles. This Cornelius, a godly man, knowing that the Scriptures do teach the Word of God, a charactered man, a very important man. Verse 3, But about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, the middle of the day. It's not a nightmare, but he's certainly terrified. Verse 4, he started at, he, as he stared at him in terror, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So about 30 miles south on the coast is this one Peter staying at Simon the Tanner's home. When the angel who spoke to him, verse 7, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. He honors the vision, obviously, and sends these messengers in his place. Well, as, this is, as they are making their way down, the next day, verse 9, 
we look now at Peter's vision. So we've seen Cornelius's vision, and now Peter's vision, verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That is about noon, an undoubtedly a flat rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. Peter goes there to pray. Tanners worked with animal skins, which required the acid from animal dung. It was an honorable trade to take the skins of animals and to sell them, but it was a repugnant trade, as you can imagine, a very smelly one. And so we are reminded of our very humble roots, we Christians. The tanner, the great Peter, visiting the tanner's home by the sea. What mattered to Peter was not what Simon the tanner did for a living, or how his house smelled, but who he worshipped as his Lord. Jesus united the hearts of Simon the Galilean fisherman, the simple man who had walked with Christ, and Simon the Judean tanner. Verse 10, And he became hungry, Peter, as he's praying, and he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, whether partially, wholly unconscious. Peter views an array of what is unclean animals. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him that said, now think of the context, the Jewish food laws, and it says this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Leviticus 11 lays out these animals that are unclean. Clean animals, land animals, had to chew the cud, and they had to have a split hoof. There couldn't be... um, Cows were clean then. Horses and swine were not. There were sea creatures. They had to have fins, and they had to have scales, and there were winged insects that had to have jointed legs, and they had to hop if you were going to eat them. There were birds of prey, reptiles, other crawlers that were all off limits. And Peter knows all of this and sees such animals descending on this something of a sheet. And he says, I'm a holy man. I've been distinctive unto God. I've not eaten these things that Gentiles have eaten, God, because you have set the parameters and I've obeyed you. I've not done what's wrong in these areas. He wants to remain holy. He wants to remain distinctive as God's people. Verse 15, the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter does not fully understand. He recognizes that God is suspending the dietary boundaries of the law, however. That's fairly clear. In fact, verse 16, this happened three times and the very thing was taken up at once into heaven. God was pointing him that it's not to him, that it is not about the food. It is about the heart. Jesus himself had made all food clean by his comment, which Peter hadn't quite grasped yet. The comment recorded for us in Mark 7 and verse 19, declaring all foods clean. But God is up to something here more than just food laws. He's seeking to point people, he's seeking to point, a lot of P's here, he's seeking to point Peter to people. 
That's the point. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, his mind is turning, he's trying to figure this out. How can God ask me to do something God said not to do? He wonders what the vision is about. And behold, as he's thinking, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have said. So he invited them in to be his guests. Verse 20, you note the phrase there, without hesitation, might be translated making no distinction. Either way, Peter is to speak freely with these Gentiles, and that's what he does. And you have to recognize the the unclean animals coming down is really no harder on him than these Gentiles coming to his home. Peter here will take an immense risk to invite them in. There will be many who criticize, but he invites them in at verse 23, and then in the next section we find the meeting between the two men. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We learn later it was six believers, plus the three from Cornelius and Peter, so at least ten make the journey north to Caesarea. And on the following day, verse 24, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him thinking him perhaps some sort of unique being, but he's, he's a monotheist. He doesn't think that he's God, but he, he doesn't know quite what to make of Peter, but he, he worships him. Think of this high-ranking officer of the occupying imperial kingdom ruling Israel and prostates himself before a Jewish fisherman. Amazing. He knows that God is the Lord. And he knows that something unique is happening. So this Jewish fisherman staying in a tanner's home is now one highly revered by Cornelius. But of course, Peter, verse 26, lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him. And he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter's trying still to wrap his mind around what God is up to here. And he addresses the crowd with a word that falls short of a powerful opening line. Notice verse 28, he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I mean, where's Peter's head? I can't eat this food. 
I can't be here meeting with you. He's still trying to put it together, still seeking to understand it. But, verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The animals were about the people. So, when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked then, why you sent for me? Why am I here? It's unlawful. It's not in accordance with Jewish tradition, Peter is saying, for him to meet with these Gentiles, to fellowship with them in their home, is to say that the people of God are, in a sense, not the people of God. That's how he would have seen it and taken it. I'm fellowshipping with those who are not God's people. I can't do this, but I'm constrained by the direction of God. I'm not real comfortable being around you, is how he starts his speech. But God sent me here. John Stott has memorably said, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Something's happening. I'm not sure what, Peter says. While Cornelius says, verse 34, days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. He just he keeps putting Peter into this corner. Yeah, it's you. It's you God wants me to talk to. And so what do you think I did? Verse 33. I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We can put ourselves in this situation. We just feel the awkwardness. Peter's like, I'm here, what do you want me to say? And they're saying, we were told to call you and you've got to have something to say. This is this awkward, what am I going to say? And he begins to put together, in a sense, this extemporaneous sermon. Verse 34, and here it is. As he preaches Christ to Cornelius. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. He opened his mouth. It's pretty hard to talk without doing that. That's not the point. The point is he's got something really important to say here. He hit it right. It's a profound utterance. And that profound utterance is dawning on Peter. As the wheels turn, he says, I understand. I'm coming to understand. He's grasping that in Christ, the kingdom of God is encompassing Gentiles directly. And at this point, he launches into the only message he knows. And that's the Gospel. Verse 36, here it is. As for the Word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. 
and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Gentile audience, how do they respond? What on earth is this all about? Yawning, bored, dull, like the orphan boy looking through the window. Why would we want that? How do they respond? Well, before we look at that, let's notice here the essence of the message here. Verses 37 and 38, the historical earthly ministry of Jesus attesting to his divine approval. Verse 39, Jesus' death as one cursed by God. 40 and 41, his resurrection attested by eating and drinking. Then 42, the living Christ will judge the living and the dead. Verse 43, the prophetic witness, the Old Testament Scriptures pointing to this Messiah, pointing to this day that He would come. And verse 43, the latter part, the forgiveness of sins. Cornelius is not a so-called noble savage who was to be left to his blissful innocence. As charactered as he was, Cornelius needed the forgiveness of Jesus' sacrificial death. He was on the right track, but he needed to respond to this message of Jesus crucified and risen. God's perfect, divine Son sent to take on flesh and to provide redemption. We see Cornelius' response, the response of these Gentiles beginning at verse 44. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Having the message of forgiveness in Christ for all who believe, Peter's hearers rejoice. It it makes sense. There's beauty in the message. They respond to it favorably. Peter's hearers are rejoicing and the Holy Spirit comes upon them as upon the Jews in Acts 2, as upon the Samaritans in Acts 8. So the Spirit falls on the Gentiles here and these Gentiles pass directly into the circle of God's people by simply what? Believing this Gospel. They believe this message and all the boundaries are falling. Verse 45 And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God in evidence of this spirit baptism in this unique setting. There was no question what had happened. They heard the message of Christ. They responded. They saw Him as beautiful. They had been saved from their sins. And what's the response? Verse 46, Peter then declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? There's some people who want to take this text and say, well, Cornelius was really a Jew. Cornelius was really not a Jew. In every possible way. 
but he responded in faith to Christ, and the response is this, these are to be baptized. They're to be immersed in water. In fact, since they've been washed by the Holy Spirit, how can we withhold baptism from them? And so, verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. To identify in the waters of baptism with Christ crucified and risen. This is the response. As Alexander puts it, why should the sign be withheld from those who were possessed of the things signified? Now, in our church, we're really cautious not to permit the circumcision under the Old Covenant to be seen as replaced by baptism under the New Covenant. And for right reason, we're concerned about that because many, we believe, make that mistake. It's not a direct replacement that pertains to children. However, with that caution, we must understand that there is a shift here and that as circumcision marked one as a participant in the Old Covenant, so baptism marks one as a participant in the New Covenant, the new way that God has chosen to save His people through Messiah. This is pushing some categories. But it was the only answer these individuals could draw. The only conclusion they could draw is Gentiles, we are in. We are in God's plan. We're invited in. You are invited in. Not by becoming a Jew, but by trusting Christ as Savior. The boundaries had been dismantled and full access to God is now provided directly through Messiah. There's no more alienation. No more condemnation. Peter sees these uncircumcised Gentiles as full-fledged members of God's people, as is confirmed by what he does at the end of verse 48. He asked, they asked him to remain for some days. And obviously he does. When we view this history, when we view what has happened here, we recognize that ultimately the ultimate boundary has been destroyed, and that is death. Jesus crushed that boundary by His resurrection. He toppled its gates. He stormed its strongholds when He died and rose again. And today, we celebrate with those who come now to the waters of baptism. We celebrate their identification with Christ's victory over death and His resurrection. Baptism is a testimony of Jesus' work. That He has worked to provide forgiveness of sin. And it is a testimony to these who follow in baptism today of their new identification with Christ. Cornelius identifies this way and breaks the new ground for us to identify with the salvation in Christ, Israel's Messiah. Indeed, baptism does mark a boundary. It marks one as united to Christ, one as dead to sin, one as alive to God, as a new identity in Christ, as one cleansed from sin through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But this boundary marker also bears witness to the fact that Jesus Christ alone is now the way, the truth, and the life. The one through whom 
we come to God. And baptism is a personal testimony to this border-crossing work of Christ. It is a testimony to our identification in Him. And so we say, though the evidence is not as profound, is not as obvious and external, we say together as a church, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And so we invite them to come in these waters and identify here with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Lord, we ask for your aid as we come to this time in obedience to your word and celebrating together the salvation that is in Christ. May you watch over this event. May you draw us close to Christ. And may we have a sense of the wonder of what Jesus has done to bring us in, to bring us into His banquet, to seat us at the table, and to say through this baptism, this one belongs to me. This one I have purchased. As these candidates make the statement that they belong to you, may the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be made clear and great in the eyes of each one of us. Through Him we pray. Amen.